Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September, 2016. The following presentation is by Maxine Jakubowski, who is the editor, along with Nathan Braun, of the mammoth book of Jack the Ripper, one that I am sure is in everyone's collection, and the new mammoth book of Jack the Ripper stories. As with all of the talks from Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sort featuring articles from all the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 151, and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel in London and Maxine Jakubowski. Speaker. Well, I actually first met our next speaker on the 26th of April, 1999. Uh, very specific that, but uh, we were both on a, a show that Justin McCollins was doing from his shed in Camden Town. Uh, it was a show called Out There, and uh, I'd just written the book Walking Haunted London, and Maxim had uh, was just brought out the mammoth book of Jack the Ripper. Uh, and this man is such a le- legend, in, in certainly in Ripper circles, uh, for that book, but also the fact that over 20 years he was the owner of the world famous Murder One bookshop on Charing Cross Road. Uh, what a fantastic location. I used to love going into that shop and just, uh, I often, often see him there sitting, sitting in the office or sitting in the corner. As I say, just a wonderful location. Uh, he also currently sits on the committee of the Crime Writers Association and he's going to give us a talk now. Uh, and so, for that, please, I'd like to hand over now to the wonderful. Um, again, I'll just say legend in Ripper circles. Can we please have a big warm welcome for Maxim Jakubowski? Thank you for that, uh, Richard. Uh, and Murder One, thank you too, in retrospect. Hello. Can you all hear me at the back? Okay. Sometimes I tend to speak in a rather low voice. That's probably at the end of a speech when I get tired. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me here. And uh, the one thing I would say is that I almost feel as if I'm here under false pretenses because I'm sure that everybody in the audience knows more about Jack the Ripper and the case and the history, the suspects, the theories, etc. than I do. Because basically, I became involved in ripperology completely by accident. So there's no way I would pretend to give you a speech about the Ripper per se, uh, or expound on any other theories, any other suspects, because I'm sure you would quickly see through me and uh, see how uneducated I am, despite the books which I actually committed, so to speak, on the subject. Uh, but I'll come to how those came about later. Basically, I'm just a writer and an editor. I spent most of my working life uh, as an editor in the world of publishing, and in parallel to that, and since the age of 16, I was writing 
I was highly unfortunate in so far as my first book, a rather terrible novel whose title you would not now get out of me with uh, pliers, <laughs> uh, was published when I was 16, which meant that uh, at, 16 year, at 16 I felt I was God's gift to creation and literature, which I wasn't. And I then spent the next 10 years writing, trying to write the great Anglo-French novel, because uh, even though I was born in Barnet, I actually now live just a couple of miles away from where I was born. Uh, I was brought up in France as my parents set up business there, and I lived in France, and actually have never been to school in England, or at any rate within the English educational system. Uh, I did come back to England for one year and did my final year of uh, the French curriculum at the French Lyce in Kensington in London, but that was basically where everybody spoke French anyway. So basically, I'm just a writer and editor. I've written, I started writing, as I said, very young, very precociously and badly. And um, initially, uh, and this I think has been the mark of my career as a writer, and this is career with a small c and between inverted commas, I started in the field of uh, fantasy and science fiction because that's what I loved. And I've always had this attraction, this love for popular fiction, which is why eventually I migrated into crime and uh, over the years and even more so now as probably a lot of people in the crime area, apart from my reviews and uh, work for the Crime Writers Association, I probably, probably think I've retired from crime because for the last five years all I've written is basically under another name. I've been writing erotica and no, I, I did not write Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Uh, but I've written, shall I say, the number three <laughs> in terms of sales after so publishing and uh, the bank manager being what they are. That's what I've been doing for the last five years until people stop writing checks and I might go back to crime writing. Actually, seriously, uh, I did finish a new crime book, my first in uh, six years, just a few months ago, and it's currently with my agent, who's probably right now on her bending knee, begging publishers to accept me into the fold again for crime. Anyway, I started writing science fiction, wrote it for many years in fantasy, uh, and then in a way lost my love for fantasy and science fiction when, uh, shall we say, Dragons and Elves and, uh, came in vogue, and it wasn't the science fiction that I grew up with. Uh, and by then, obviously, I was working in publishing, and obviously when you're working, when you're editing other people's books, it takes a lot of time and it it distracts from your own writing, so my writing basically slowed down immeasurably during those years, even though I did still do a lot of books. Uh, and what I also did was a lot of anthologies. Uh, somehow uh, I fell into this particular area where I seem to know everybody in the science fiction and fantasy field, everybody in the crime world, everybody in the erotic world. So publishers started coming to me saying, oh, would you like to do a book on this subject or one on another? And uh, so I did a lot of anthologies. In fact, at the latest count, I published uh, 122 anthologies, although there are none in the future, I'm happy to say, um, because somehow uh, we're going through that phase in the publishing world where certain things are out of vogue. And of course, uh, during my publishing career, obviously, I 
launched uh, various climbing prints, um, which became quite popular, mostly specializing in reprints, although I did do a number of contemporary authors. And after a long, uh, long publishing career, I finally left and thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to full-time writing, which I thought would be a bit boring, uh, and wasn't sure whether I actually had uh, the willpower to get up every morning and go in front of that um, blank uh, computer screen and just write until the words actually came, whether they're good or bad. And um, I remembered when I was working as an editor and publishing crime, uh, often traveling in uh, North America and noticing that interesting phenomenon at the time, this was in the early 1980s, that at the time there were 19 specialist crime and mystery bookstores in America, in North America, i.e. in the US and Canada. I hadn't visited all of them. Most of them were quite small, but there were some in New York, uh, Crime Inc. and the Mysterious Bookshop, uh, which were in fact quite sizable. And I thought, why hasn't somebody done this in England? There is this enthusiasm for crime fiction, uh, which hasn't changed for decades. There are new generations of readers coming on all the time, and everybody still wants to read crime fiction. And I thought, why not? I had a bit of money which I invested in it, uh, made arrangements with the Royal Bank of Scotland for an overdraft when we made our conclusion that we would run out of money on month three and would need an overdraft, and uh, opened uh, Murder One uh, at the time on Denmark Street, off Charing Cross Road. It wasn't a huge space, uh, but uh, we had space. I mean, we had, I devised this formula of what, what we would sell and how we would sell it, and it worked, fortunately. And there was still a little bit of space at the back of a store, and I thought, what can I put there? And then I thought, well, the obvious thing is true crime. Now, I'll make no secret, I've never been a great fan of true crime. I find that apart from, let's say, maybe one book out of ten, most true crime books are fairly exploitative, they're derivative, and some, in some cases dangerously titillating. But, of course, it's like in any category of uh, publishing or writing, the 10% that remains are the is the quality stuff. And the quality stuff was, obviously, John Pearson's uh, book on uh, the craze of the professional violence, uh, uh, Vincent Bugliosi's book on the family helter-skelter, and a lot of more serious books that actually looked at things seriously, looked at the history, and were not there basically to titillate people uh, or make uh, the big bucks. So I opened a section, we, did, we couldn't st stock a lot, and I was looking at it rather in two minds, and sales began growing and growing. So we grew the section and then when we moved to much larger premises some year, some four years later on the Traffic Cross Road, we had a complete section which many of you I'm grateful appear to remember where basically we stopped everything in print, whether from the UK or if it wasn't available in the UK, which we imported from the USA, which of course it did include a lot of books on awful serial killers with horrible details about all the killings, uh, the methods of incision, the methods of embalming, uh, all the cutting up in pieces, and there was an audience for that. And at the risk of sounding 
completely uh, politically incorrect. What worried me most about the true crime section at Murder One throughout the years was that 90% of customers, or at any rate, the people drowsing through the books were women. Um, however, the Jack the Ripper section, because we had we, we had obviously the true crime section, and within it we had some subsections because of the number and importance of some of the books. The Jack the Ripper section, the Kennedy assassination section, uh, the Cray section, and we even hosted one of the Crays at a signing once. And I, this is just an aside, uh, I think it was the lesser of the Cray brothers. Uh, and uh, he was signing at it, he had this huge bodyguard. And at one stage, I, le I leaned over, to, I think, to push a book closer to him for a signing or something like that. And his bodyguard sort of moved in between us in one moment. And the other famous true crime signing we had is, of course, uh, we advertised uh, Ronnie Biggs. And we did a signing via fax machine. He was in Brazil. And, <laughs> Which made the evening stand in a lot of things. Uh, and I'm sure that one third of the customers in the shops were cops actually thinking he was going to come. <laughs> but uh, as I said, it worried me that 90% of the audience for, shall I say, the lesser true crime books were actually female readers. And I've always sort of wondered uh, what attracted them. To it because they were, they were going for the hard, what I would call the hard stuff. I mean, all the serial killer novels with every single detail of what happened to the terrible victims of these men and occasionally and rarely women. And I thought it's somehow it's one of these there but for luck or fate go I syndromes. Uh, but I've never wanted to go very deep in it into it and uh, I mentioned it in one or two interviews at the time and as a result I was then invited onto TV on uh, the dreaded Vanessa Feltz show uh, mm. and I said I will only go if I can basically say what I want uh, and I don't want to be seen as an apologist because I sell true crime books as an apologist for crime and she said no problem no problem and of course the moment uh, we went live I was introduced <coughs> to my interlocutor who was basically uh, represented victims of crime and I was basically crucified live on TV for selling to crime books but that's all part of what happens um, when uh, you don't think ahead too much um, so as I said we opened murder one and true crime did very well then I said I do distinguish between a certain element of true crime writing and 90% of the Ripper books actually do fall into that category. They're wonderfully researched. They are people who basically spend, I, I would help, I would hope, not all their lives, but a lot of their time investigating all these crimes, investigating the suspects, the historical circumstances, and uh, I totally admire that uh, dedication. And I've been doing a lot of books for Robinson Books, who then became Constable Robinson, um, when they merged with Constable, and they had an imprint called The Mammoth List. Now, The Mammoth List was Nick Robinson, who died, sadly, uh, six, seven years ago, and was basically one of the nicest and best publishers in, on the London scene, and a very dear friend, uh, had this idea that 
you could offer basically 600 page paperbacks for the price of normal paperbacks, say 6.99. Eventually, over the years, they moved up to 8.99. And um, I've done a lot of books for him. Uh, I've done. Uh, thematic things within science fiction, within crime. I then started one year, although I offered it one year and it took me three years to convince him. This was long before Fifty Shades of Grey of doing, and I said, Nick, we would meet twice a year, twice a year over lunch and he'd pitch some ideas to me and I'd pitch some ideas to him. And usually I ended up doing one or two books per year for the imprint and one year um, I said, you know, Erotic writing is like crime, uh, it's like science fiction. A lot of it is crap, but there, there is some good stuff. It would be nice to do a mammoth book of erotica with some of the contemporary classics. Even Martin Amis, Will Self, Anne Rice, Leonard Cohen have written pieces which could fall into erotica. And he was a bit nervous and he said no, and I kept on lunch after lunch, eventually he said yes. And I did the Mammoth Book Erotica, and we ended up selling 600,000 copies, which kept the company alive for a few years. And of course, uh, dropped me straight into the Erotica fold, so to speak. Uh, and um, at one of these lunches, it's actually, uh, to be fair, it's Nick Robinson who said, I've already done a few books on Jack the Ripper outside of the Mammoth List. He did books with Philip Sugden, that I could recall, and one or two other people. And he said, we should do a mammoth book of Jack the Ripper. And I said, I know nothing about Jack the Ripper. I mean, I've leafed through some of the books in the uh, true crime section, uh, including those you've published, but I don't really know. But he said, yes, but you're a good editor. You'll know how to do it. So I came up with an idea for what became the mammoth book of Jack the Ripper. I did it with uh, Nathan Braun, who was then running our true crime section at the bookstore. And uh, in all fairness, he did most of the work. I came up with the framework with the idea, which is basically my job as an editor. And I, I could see that there were, at the time, 40 or 50 books in print, and nearly every one of them had a different theory. Was it Krasminski? Was it one of the walls? Was it somebody else? And I thought, Maybe because this was a book for the general public. Uh, why, why isn't there a book basically for the general reader? There were some, of course, but within six months of publication, everyone was, every one of them was becoming out of date because there new theories coming up. And I came up with a simple idea: all we, all we have to do for this book, we'll have an, a hundred-page introduction, basically just the facts. And Nathan went through every book written on Jack the Ripper just to take out what were the incontrovertible facts. And we had them in chronological order, basically everything that happened on the ground, in the police files, in the newspapers. And then what I did is I invited, I think, 15 or 16 of the leading ripologists, people who'd done complete books in their own right on uh, the Jack the Ripper uh, case, and um, asked them, can you do a digest of your theory, which would fit into 30 or 40 pages? All of them accepted bar one. This was Colin Wilson, actually, uh, because he wanted more money than we could offer. And the book came out, and the book's been in print now for, I think, uh, nearly nearly 20 years, has reprinted eight or nine times. Has gone. Did, did, we did a new edition four or five years ago, which we took out 
two or three of the older theories which have now been discredited and added some of the more recent ones and the book keeps on selling and that was really nice. I was happy the royalties were coming in um, and jump many years in the future and um, by then uh, Nick Robertson sadly had died but uh, I had a very good relationship with uh, the editor, the constable, uh, who was running the Mammoth List. Uh, and he said, um, the, the Jack the Ripper book is doing so well. It's, it's a pity we can't do another one. I said, well, we can't do a second one. But, and, and I said, oh, yes, we could. Why don't we do a book of fictional stories asking some of the best crime and horror writers around with whom I and friendly and do have regular contact of writing a new story involving Jack the Ripper. And we thought, there have been a lot already done. Uh, I mean, there's obviously Robert Block's famous story, uh, but um, there is enough there for a whole book already of stories already written. And in fact, my American counterpart, Otto Penzler, who runs a mysterious bookshop in New York and also, like me, edits a lot of books, has just delivered to Vintage Books in New York a book of Jack the Ripper fiction, which is coming out September of next year, which is going to be 1,200 pages in small print. Uh, but what he's done, he's licensed the rights to our 100 pages of pure facts, which will come at the beginning of his book, and that, that's one of the big, the big Ripper book of next year, albeit fictional, but these are all reprints, not new stories, and what I did with uh, the more recent Mammoth book of Jack the Ripper stories is basically, I just rang round a number of writers uh, in the crime and uh, horror field saying, would you like to write a new story? And all of them did. We also put out a call for submission, so two-thirds of the stories uh, were brand new ones and one-third uh, were written on spec. Uh, not one story did I have to do really much editing because everybody... I was very nervous at first because I thought, how can one vary it over 35 stories? But every story is completely different. And I'm very happy to say that one of the stories by the Manchester writer Conrad Williams, who's known for crime and horror, has been shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association Best Story of the Year Award, which will be given out, uh, in fact, in five weeks uh, on October 11th. But although I chair one of the awards, I don't know what's happened in those awards, so I can't tell you whether he's won or not. So basically that is how I became involved with uh, Jack the Ripper and uh, in fact in parallel with uh, the uh, Jack the Ripper stories collection uh, I also did uh, because it, it was my initial thought I mean Jack the Ripper is the ultimate villain whether true or fictional but in fact he's become such a myth that he has like a he, He's, a, he's, he's gained a sort of fictional aura, and it led my mind to thinking to other great fictional villains, and I, obviously uh, because of the Benedict uh, Cumberbatch, uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, series on TV, I thought, and the wonderful interpretation by Andrew Scott of uh, Professor Moriarty, uh, I thought, we, why not do a book of Professor Moriarty stories? So in fact, the Moriarty stories and the Jack the Ripper stories came out almost simultaneously. And uh, oddly enough, Jack the Ripper appears in three or four of the Moriarty uh, stories, as does Sherlock Holmes, of course, who does appear in some of the Ripper stories, because, of course, same period, same 
they say everybody has an image of Victoria in London in their mind uh, and of course Jack the Ripper is part of it and Sherlock Holmes is part of it so it was inevitable that their paths would cross at least on the fictional page so basically um, the Ripper book did well and uh, it was quite amusing because as we had by then uh, Nathan had left Murder One and had gone to teach in uh, Far East Asia so when the book came out I was the only person there who was available for promotional duties including the show I was on <laughs> on the day of uh, Giordano's death uh, and uh, I did obviously as one does as part of the promotional circuit uh, I did radio, I did TV and it was a difficult book to promote for me because as I said at the beginning apart from what I published in my own book I don't know the facts inside out as you many of you all do and uh, I'm afraid I did put my foot, in, my foot in my mouth on one occasion because after half a dozen interviews where at the end of the interview I could see it coming every time we do the interview and then the interviewer would say but what is your theory? Who was Jack the Ripper? And it was becoming so predictable that in one of my final, I think it was a radio interview, I said, uh, I think it was on the Today program actually, well, I think it was John Humphrey. Uh, I thought he'd come up with better questions. <laughs> uh, I said, so, according to you, who was Jack the Ripper? And I was in a facetious mood, I was in a bad mood, or I'd woken, woken up on a bad sign, I said, oh, of course. Of course, it was Elvis Presley, and he had a time, he had a time machine. Uh, I actually received some hate mail after that. <laughs> Maybe from some people in the audience. <laughs> anyway, it was a flippant reaction, but um, I, mean, I understand why uh, people are so fascinated by the case, uh, and the fact that beyond. Uh, the historical facts, uh, the figure of the Ripper has become something of a myth and as a myth obviously all fictional possibilities open up uh, and uh, I mean a myth transcends reality in a curious and fascinating way I mean when I opened Murder One of those years ago I also did a series of interviews and people say apart from the people who said it won't work People won't go to a specialist crime bookshop. They won't. They won't want to be seen in a crime bookshop. Uh, and my answer was usually, uh, "Why a crime bookshop in London?" Uh, I said, "Well, Britain is the home of Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, of Agatha Christie, Raymond Chandler was even born in London." And then I said, "And." The first of the major serial killers was English. Jack the Ripper was English. He was our serial killer. So, I mean, this myth, and I find it fascinating that uh, since the Mammoth book, uh, there hasn't been any stock of number books coming out, good and bad. And I remember seeing one book which was the most unreadable book, and I hope the author is not in the room, uh, which basically. Uh, came to accuse a particular suspect of being Jack the Ripper on the, because of 
the signs in the stars, the direction of the stars, the Kabbalistic ley lines underneath London and the East End. I mean, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, he actually did an essay for the Memorial Book of uh, which I had to cut down from 150 pages to 30. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, the famous uh, crime writer Patricia Cornwell, who uh, took. Uh, her infamy far enough to start cutting up actual paintings in order to analyze the materials and try and point a finger at uh, the painter whom she thought was uh, Jack the Ripper. Uh, so we have all these classic killers, I mean, from Vlad the Impaler to Fu Manchu to Hannibal Lecter. And um, these are cases which in all cases, it, it's interesting to see, have been inspired by history, I mean. And um, the Ripper stands as the sort of ultimate figure of evil, even more so because of peace. He was never identified, he was never captured, uh, and he just disappeared into nowhere, which opens up so many possibilities. And as a result, I mean, in our minds, we've made him into this master criminal, and we ascribe to him a level of intelligence which maybe he never even had. I mean, he might be laughing in his grave, thinking, ah, oh, this is already the 21st conference, they're all talking about me again. <laughs> and uh, it's absolutely fascinating, but on the other hand, what I find in my studies of crime fiction, and, uh, on which I've written for years now and done a number of books, <laughs> is that, uh, I mean, real life does inspire fiction, or is it the other way around? I mean, the serial killer in real life, Ed Gein uh, inspired uh, the character of Robert Bloch, and then Hitchcock used uh, in Psycho, uh, the Russian serial killer, Andrei Shikatelo, inspired uh, Tom Smith's Child uh, 44, then you have Ted Bundy, the Green uh, River Killer. I mean, there's a sad glamour about them all, uh, and even more so in the cases of uh, the British serial killer cases, I mean, the Yorkshire Ripper, Fred and Rosemary West, uh, etc. Somehow American serial killers somehow have this horrible added touch of glamour, which I find rather odd. But um, what's been interesting is that uh, modern crime fiction has moved away over the last 30 years or so uh, quite radically from what I would call the Gilded Age, the Golden Age of Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, to a more grit, to a grittier, more realistic perspective post-World post War II. And uh, maybe it's the influence of the violence of the wars or Freud and psychiatry, which has led us to, given us this need to fathom the reason and the depth of evil and to understand our antagonist. I mean, there's been, there's been a veritable avalanche in the 1970s of serial killer books, many of them of a, and here I'm talking fiction, many of them exploitative as were the true crime books on the same subject, although there have been good writers delving into the subject, trying to understand the nature of evil from Thomas Harris to Cornwell, when Cornwell was still writing good books, which goes back a couple of decades. <laughs> Uh, to Val McDermid, who of course is also fascinated and has recently done a book on forensics, uh, to the uh, Bristol writer Mo Hader, who I think is one of the major current realistic crime writers and has a strong fascination for serial killers, uh, the American writer and journalist, because he came 
from the crime page of newspapers, Michael Connolly, when he wrote The Poet, which I think is one of the great serial killer novels of our generation. Uh, and more recently, and this is, I'm doing publicity in advance, there's a young French woman who's written an incredible crime novel with a serial killer, which is completely different to any you've seen before. And it came out in France last October, it's called Block 46. She's French, but her husband is Swedish, so she has a Swedish name. Her name is Joanna Gustafsson. The book, and I'm currently translating the book. I'm on page 200 right now and delivering in a few weeks, and it'll come out in England next May, and I really urge you to look out for it, not for my terrible translation, but for the sheer innate qualities of the book, because it is a serial killer book with a difference at a time when you think, how can one innovate with a serial killer genre, but the good writers always manage to do it. So, basically, Jack the Ripper, a killer larger in life, and I think he's now influencing a lot of modern crime fiction, uh, discreetly, ambiguously, but I think that influence is there. I think there are very few crime writers of, a, of what I would term a realistic bent who are not aware of Jack the Ripper and who have not read on Jack the Ripper and are maybe subconsciously uh, influenced uh, by the case. Uh, and in fact, when I went back to writing crime, um, I think it was in 1990, yes, it was around, no, 1992 or three, I did my first crime novel in ages. It's a book called It's You That I Want to Kiss, which is a road movie with two lovers fleeing from the baddies. And because the book was a sort of classic template, I wanted to make it even more evident. So uh, the main baddie was actually called Mr. Evil, almost as a homage to all the great baddies of crime fiction and of reality, although one admires them as much less so. So in a way, maybe it's a good thing that we, we never have and probably never will know for certain uh, the identity of Jack the Ripper, of the Whitechapel killer, or even more so his motives, but I think if that makes deeper the mystery, deeper the attraction to the man, the myth, the subject. Thank you. And that was Maxime Jakubowski, the editor of the Mammoth Book of Jack the Ripper and the Mammoth Book of Jack the Ripper Stories. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ripperologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all these talks and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper, East End and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook page, so you can find a lot of information there. 
We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would have never been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community and you, our listeners. And so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. See you next time.